Hello, this is William Fink, and it is Friday, September 2nd, 2011. This is Krista Genninger on TalkShoe. Before I start, I'd like to say that I have a copy of the um, Krista Genninger New Testament available in softcover now. It's exactly like the hardcover edition. The exact same pages. There's no difference. The paper quality, of course, is a little cheaper because it's softcover. The um the, the cover is just as nice. It's the same artwork. And it's only about eighteen dollars, so it's a lot cheaper. I also have on the front page of Christogenia.org a link to a software package called Bible Analyzer. Bible Analyzer is not a real fancy um Bible software package. It it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that Bible works does or even eSword. But what it does is, is um, it, it simply puts different Bible versions side by side so that you could compare them. That's it. And, and I have a, a module for Bible Analyzer for the Christogenian New Testament now. So that if you download the Bible Analyzer software, by default, with no additional modules, it gives you the, um, the King James Version and the ASV the American Standard Version, and, and if you add the module that's available for download from the front page of Christogenia, you could have the Christogenia New Testament side by side with those, and, and you, you could just be able to quickly compare the Christogenia New Testament with those other versions. There are additional modules for yet other versions available at the Bible Analyzer site. Some of them are free and some of them are fee. The Christogenia version is free and it's only available from Christogenia.org. Tomorrow night I will have Clifton Emmerheiser here and we will be talking about um, Queen Beatrice and, and the Middle Ages and Northern Africa. And, and that's going to be our subject tomorrow night. Okay. Finishing the Discourse of Christ concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and of the time of the end and of his return, which is contained in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Hopefully we saw how these things which he had said and the parables which he left us concerning the troublous times, the ten virgins, the wicked servant, and the sheep and the goat nations all meshed with the many other prophecies concerning those same things, which we saw from Isaiah chapters 50 and 51 and Micah chapter 4 and many other places, Revelation chapter 19. That at the end of days and the return of Christ, all of his enemies are destroyed. And in the end, there are nobody is left but the sheep. This is the true promise of Christianity, when we shall indeed have heaven on earth, which is what Christians everywhere should pray for incessantly, just as Joshua Christ himself had instructed us to pray, that things be on earth as they are in heaven, when his kingdom comes, and it shall indeed come. First, here we see, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to, 
Matthew 26, 1. Here we go with Matthew chapter 26. And it came to pass that when Yahshua had finished all these sayings, he said to his students, you know that after two days it shall be Passover, and the Son of Man is handed over for which to be crucified. First, here we see Matthew tell us that now Yahshua had finished all these sayings. So we see that this does indeed mark the end of that discourse, which began at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, where the apostles had initially asked him about the pending destruction of Jerusalem and the time of the end and the time of his coming. Matthew 26.3 At that time the high priests and the elders of the people gathered in the court of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they took counsel that with guile they shall seize and kill Yahshua. But they said, not on a feast, in order that there would be a tumult, in order that there would not be a tumult among the people, a commotion among the people. The actual counsel of the Pharisees was not recorded by Matthew, but it was recorded by John in chapter 11 of his gospel, verses 47 through 53, and I'll read them here. Then the high priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What do we do, seeing that this man makes many signs? The political and religious leaders of Judea didn't care that he was able to make the signs. They only cared that he was able to threaten their own perceived authority. If we should leave him thusly, they shall all, meaning all the people, believe in him. And the Romans shall come, and they shall take both our place and our nation. They were cared about their place first, and their nation second. Then a certain one from among them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, and now it could be demonstrated that Caiaphas was actually a Sadducee. That's in Acts chapters 4 and 5, and it can be demonstrated from the history of Josephus. The Sadducees rejected everything spiritual. Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You do not know anything, nor do you consider that it is advantageous to you that one man should die on behalf of the people, and the whole nation not be lost. Now, John makes a parenthetical statement here, and he says at John 11.51, yet he did not say this by himself. In other words, John's saying that God guided him to say that. But being high priest, just like God guided Balaam's ass, right? But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yahshua was about to die on behalf of the nation. And not only on behalf of the nation, but also that he would gather into one the children of Yahweh who had been dispersed, meaning all of the dispersions of the children of Israel. Therefore, from that day they determined that they would kill him. John was an unlearned man. He wrote his gospel 60 years after the crucifixion. He probably didn't really know it at the time, 
But I'm sure he learned later, and especially from Paul. John was at Ephesus where Paul spent a considerable amount of time. John was there later. The um, the Romans, the Scythians, the Parthians, all of the, the, the tribes of the Adamic world at the time of Christ who had hegemony, who had the leadership, the 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 the, the um, leading role in, in their respective parts of the world, the Parthians in the east, the Romans in the, in, in the Mediterranean basin, and and in the west, and the Scythians, Germanic peoples of the north, they were all descended from the children from the children of Israel. And here we see that John, he doesn't say anything about non-Jews, right? He doesn't say anything about um non-Israelites, he's only talking about the children of Yahweh who had been dispersed in his own words. He would gather into one the children of Yahweh who had been dispersed. Those dispersions happened with the deportations of Israel. Matthew 26.6 Then upon Yahshua's being in Bethania at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came forth to him having a box of very valuable ointment, and which is reclining, she had poured it upon his head. But seeing it, the students had been annoyed, saying, For what is this waste? Indeed, this was able to be sold for much and to be given to the poor. And knowing it, Yahshua said to them, Why do you offer the woman trouble? Surely she has performed a good deed for me. For you always have the poor among you, but you do not always have me. Indeed, she putting the ointment upon my body has done it, for which to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever in all of society this good message, this gospel, should be proclaimed, this which she has done shall also be spoken of for a memorial of her. The providence of God in Christ. It's a pretty um, forward statement, right, for for Christ to know that this gospel, that this message that he had, that these apostles were recording, and, and he must have known that, what would be proclaimed in all the world, right? He knew this ahead of time. I, I mean, any false prophet could come along and say, oh, the whole world's going to hear my message. But how often does that turn out to be true? <laughs> Not very, and especially at this time, before the mass media, right? Before the printing press, when words were written with um, great care and labor and, and copied very slowly, and, and it took a long time for, for, um, for gospel accounts, but for lengthy books to be disseminated throughout the world. And, and most often, the people that disseminated books only disseminated the books that they felt would be the most profitable because it was a great labor to, to copy an entire book by hand and, and to make multiple copies of it for sale. Now, of course, the Christian message was not sold at this time, which makes it even more amazing that... that um, a plain man could make such a statement, but Yahshua Christ certainly is God, and the word of God certainly is true, 
And he was correct, and this gospel message is still going out through the entire world, for better or worse, for 2,000 years. That's the providence of God in Christ. There is an event recorded at Luke 7.44, because this, this thing with the woman and the anointing of Christ, this is a confusing story, right? The sinful woman entered into the house of a man named Simon, who was a Pharisee, and washed Joshua's feet with her hair and anointed him with ointment as he dined there. That woman, Joshua, clearly from the account, did not know intimately from a human perspective before she anointed him and washed his feet. This happened when Joshua was in a city called Nain, N-A-I-N, which was in Galilee. Luke 7.11. This incident in Luke 7, a lot of people confuse with the later incident that we see here in Matthew, which is also paralleled in Mark and in John. And, and this incident in Luke is much earlier in Yahshua's ministry, and it is not the same event. And if you examine it, you'll see that all of the circumstances of the earlier event recorded in Luke chapter 7 are quite different than those found here. So that eliminates one um, realm of confusion with, with this incident of, of Yahshua's anointing. At John verse 11, cha- I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 2, where it is said that, Now it was Mariam who anointed the prince with ointment and wiped off his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. We learn that Mariam, and she's called Mary in the King James Version, was the woman who anointed Joshua with ointment in the last week of his ministry. And Mark chapter 14 also records the same event, in the same circumstances as Matthew does here, and as we see in John chapter 12. However, in the event, as the event is described both in Matthew and in Mark, the event happened in the house of Simon the leper, and that's a name not seen anywhere else in Scripture. Where in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 12, This same event takes place not in the house of Simon the leper, but in the house of Lazarus, the man whom Christ had raised from the dead in John chapter 11, whose sisters are Martha and Mariam. Lazarus lived in Bethany, as we see in John 11.1. And Matthew and Mark both state that Simon the leper lived in Bethany. So, Either Lazarus is also Simon the leper, which is one possible situation. That's just another name for him. Or Lazarus, Martha, and Mariam lived in the same house with Simon the leper. One or the other has to be true. Perhaps coincidentally, in a different story, the man whom Christ called Lazarus in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we see in Luke chapter 16. That man is also described as a leper, having sores all over his body, but he was not specifically called a leper. While the parable is an allegory, 
And the man need not actually exist because it is a parable, right? It still may be the reason that Christ chose to use the name Lazarus for the man in his parable. And if the real Lazarus had been healed by Christ of his leprosy, he may still have borne the name of a leper. And, and there's still more confusion. In the Gospel of John, which was written by all accounts about 60 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the triumphal march into Jerusalem with Yahshua riding on an ass happens one day after this feast with Christ and Lazarus and Martha and Mariam, where, where Christ is anointed with this oil by Mariam. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, the triumphal march into Jerusalem happens long before, well, at least several days before this feast with Christ and Martha and Lazarus and Mariam. So it's, it's um, whether the chronology, it, it, it's clear that John may even mean another event, which is possible, where in chapter 11 of his gospel, he had said, now it was Mariam who anointed the prince with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Or the chronology of the last weeks in the ministry of Christ is simply at a variance in John's gospel as compared with Matthew and Mark. In, in, in Matthew, the event where this happens occurs, where the triumphal march into Jerusalem happens, is described in Matthew chapter 21. Preceding this event of the anointing of Christ by Mariam in Matthew chapter 26. Now, now that only leaves a span of a couple of days, since most of Matthew 23, 24, and 25 relate a single discourse by Christ that happened within a couple of hours, right? 23, he's discoursing with the Pharisees. And, and then they leave the temple with the apostles, and he leaves the temple with the apostles in 24 and 25 and, and talks to them for, for that duration, that, that those sayings took for him to speak. So, so it's, it's not a lot of time between Matthew 21 and Matthew 26. But in Matthew and Mark, the triumphal march into Jerusalem precede this feast that he has with Mariam and Martha and, and Lazarus. In John, the triumphal march into Jerusalem happens on the next day after this feast. So there's, a, there's an apparent discrepancy there. It may not be a discrepancy because Christ was in Bethany very often during his final couple of weeks, and it's possible that there were several such episodes which were confounded in the memories of the apostles who recorded these things 
at a much later time, and, and that's very possible too. So, so the discrepancy doesn't. It, it surely shouldn't disturb one's faith. It's no big deal, but we should be aware that it is there, and that critics love to pick on those little things, right? Matthew 26, verse 14. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. That I have one more thing to say about this um, this event where the apostles were concerned about the value of the ointment that it could have been sold and given to the poor. And John records it, but Matthew does not. John records that the apostle who was concerned that voiced um, consternation about why this ointment wasn't sold rather than wasted on the body of Christ was Judas Iscariot. And John says that he was concerned about selling the ointment because he was really a thief and he had carried the box. And, and meaning the box, the, 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 um, the purse where the apostles actually pooled, they pooled any money that they had for when it was needed. And Judas Iscariot was basically the group treasurer. And that's what we would expect of an Edomite Jew. And John, the apostle, tells us that he was a thief and would have stolen the money that the ointment would have been sold for. So that's why he was really concerned about it. Matthew 26:14. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, going to the high priests, said, What would you want to give me? And I shall betray him to you. And they appointed for him thirty silver pieces. And from that time he saw an opportunity that he could betray him. I would quote Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And Yahweh said unto me, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter into the, into the house of the Lord, into the house of Yahweh. While the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11 is quite enigmatic, and the Septuagint version helps us to understand it, we nevertheless see that the 30 pieces of silver are cast to the potter in the temple. In Matthew chapter 27, we learn that Judas, in his consternation after the the, the, um, trial of Christ, right? Judas and his consternation actually did that. So, in effect, where Judas cast the 30 pieces into the temple, and they were ultimately used to purchase a field from the potter for the burial of strangers. It is evident that a potter may have such a field for the mining of clay, which could that field could not then really be used for agriculture. And many commentators have sought hidden symbolic meanings in all of the possibilities of the potter's field and the clay, but it, it's simply the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah. 
And as for the Septuagint version of Zechariah chapter 11, one important difference where, where we may understand it better is in, in the um, in the King James Version, it says brotherhood, where the Septuagint has possession in verse 14. There was no brotherhood in Zechariah's time, and I'm going to read Zechariah 11 and, and comment on it. There was no brotherhood in Zechariah's time between Judah and Israel. The tribes had divided and fought with each other ever since the death of Solomon, and they competed with each other for centuries up to Zechariah's time, and at Zechariah's time, the Israelites had all already been deported, along with most of Judah. So therefore, I firmly lean towards the Septuagint reading in Zechariah 11, verse 14. Unfortunately, the Dead Sea Scrolls are not a good witness because they are wanting almost all of Zechariah chapter 11. In this chapter, Zechariah 11, we see Yahweh promising the breaking of the covenant, and this is important, and of the, of the possession of Israel and Judah. The old covenant was broken with the death of Yahweh, the husband of Israel, on the cross of Christ, and the wife was freed from the law and from the covenant, so that a new covenant may be established with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, as we see prophesied in both Ezekiel and in Jeremiah chapter 31. Zechariah was a prophet during the period when the temple was rebuilt at the first return of captives to Jerusalem from Babylon. Zechariah chapter 10 is a prophecy of redemption for Israel and Judah. Of course, nearly all of Israel and most of Judah were dispersed far and wide by this time into Europe and into Asia. At Zechariah 10, verse 6, Yahweh says, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, most of whom were not there, and I will save the house of Joseph, none of, hardly any of whom were there. They were all in Europe and Asia. And I will bring them again to place them, for I, I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am Yahweh their God, and will hear them. And with this, promise setting the tone in Zechariah chapter 10, I will read Zechariah chapter 11. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. Sounds like a chapter of judgment, right? There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, but a glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. This cannot be something which happened in Zechariah's own time. Zechariah's time was a time of rebuilding. It was the time in which the second temple was being built. So this must look forward to a future event. Zechariah 11, verse 4. Thus saith Yahweh my God, feed the flock of the slaughter, the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty, whose possessors slay them. That's important in understanding this passage. And they that sell them say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not, for I will no more 
pity the inhabitants of the land, saith Yahweh, but lo, I will deliver the man, every one, into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. This seems to me to indicate the Roman treatment of Judea, where the Romans are the possessors, the shepherds of the Edomite Jews who have taken the political offices and the ecclesiastical offices in Jerusalem. This seems to me to indicate the Roman treatment of Judea in the years before the fall of Jerusalem, that Yahweh had set the Romans to punish these people. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. The poor of the flock, we will see, are those who became Christians. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty and the other I called bands, a stave being a, a rod or a stick, right? And I fed the flock. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. And, and the thought I have here is that this may be a reference to the three would-be emperors who all died in Rome being supplanted by challengers in one year prior to when Jerusalem was taken. That year was 69 AD. The three emperors' names were Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. After the death of Nero, Galba came to power. He ruled a short time. Otho usurped him. Otho lasted six months. Vitellius usurped Otho. Vitellius lasted three months, and Vespasian, who then started a mini-dynasty of three generations of Roman rulers, displaced Vitellius. Verse 9. Then I said, I will not feed you, that that dieth, let it die, and that that and that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off, and let, and let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And this seems to be describing the inhabitants of Jerusalem in its final months. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. That seems to me to indicate the death of the old covenant in Christ. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. This describes the good people of Judea who understood the prophecies concerning the Christ. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price. Here we have the thirty pieces of silver. And I cast Give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver, and Yahweh said unto me, Cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was priced by them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. This is the price of his betrayal. Then I cut asunder. Mine other staff, even bands, that I might break 
the possession, as we see in the Septuagint, between Israel and Judah. And Yahweh said to me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in a land which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that that stands still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Now, this is enigmatic, but it, it, from the time of the rebellion and the destruction of Jerusalem, the Roman emperors had nothing but trouble with the Jews. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye, and his arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. It is clear to me in, in Zechariah chapter 11 that the 30 pieces of silver and the breaking of the covenant, which can only happen upon the death of Yahweh in Christ, are fully related in prophecy right here in Zechariah, even if the manuscripts and the translations cause us some confusion. Matthew twenty six seventeen. Then on the first day of unleavened bread, the students came forth to Yahshua, saying, Where do you wish that we should prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, we do not know exactly how many days transpired between Matthew 26, 1, where Christ said, After two days it shall be Passover, and this day here, which we were, which we are told was the first day of unleavened bread. Yet it seems to be either the next day or the day after. And so it must be Passover in the mind of Christ, who said after two days it will be Passover. We saw that at least one feast, the feast he had where he was anointed, what with um, Martha and Mariam and Lazarus, happened in between Matthew 26, 1, and this statement here, right? So that's at least one day transpired. The Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the day after the Passover lamb is slaughtered, as we could tell from Exodus chapter 12 and Leviticus chapter 23. While the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month, and I'll read Exodus chapter 12, verses 6 through 9, and ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, the lamb that was chosen on the 10th day, right? And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. So the day upon which the Passover was actually eaten was, by the way the Hebrew calendar is kept, the beginning of the 15th day of the month. Because it was eaten at night. Therefore, reading Leviticus 23, verses 5 and 6, we should bear in mind 
that the Passover necessarily starts on the 14th day, because that's when the lamb is slaughtered and cooked, but it is eaten on the 15th day. And I'll quote, And the 14th day of the first month at evening is, is Yahweh's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread unto Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Yet Matthew considered the day upon which the Passover should be prepared to be the first day of unleavened bread, and therefore we see a departure, it seems to me, from the exact words of the accounts of Exodus and Leviticus. It's possible that the preparation day when the Passover was to be prepared, which was the evening before it was to be eaten, was being considered the first day of unleavened bread because that was the day by which leaven was to be removed from the home, Exodus 12.15. Yet there's a further, yet there is an even further departure here, which is evident, a departure from Scripture, right? When Christ was crucified, on the day after Christ had the Passover with his disciples, that day was considered by the Judeans to be the preparation day and the day before the Passover. This displays a difference of two days between the two Passovers. John seems to distinguish that difference in the calendar where he says in John 2.13 that it was near the Passover of the Judeans. And again at John 19.42, John talks about the burial of Christ, and he says, So there, on account of the preparation day of the Judeans, because the tomb was near, they had laid Yahshua. By distinguishing the Passover and the preparation day to be of the Judeans, it seems to me that John did not share these days in common with them. Or why would he distinguish them? Here we clearly esteem, we clearly see that the disciples of Christ esteemed a day for the Passover other than the day upon which the Judeans celebrated the Passover. The attitude of the disciples here, and in all the accounts, was not at all that they must celebrate the Passover early for any reason. They had no way of knowing the things which were to transpire as those things transpired in the few days yet to come in the ministry of Christ, right? The apostles didn't know what was going to happen ahead of time. It is fully evident that there were different calendars even at the time of Christ, that the Judeans had deviated from the original, that the Passover which Christ celebrated was not the same Passover that they were celebrating in Jerusalem. When the disciples asked about the eating of the Passover, there was no indication at all that they thought they were eating Passover on any day other than the day upon which they thought they should have been eating it. They clearly believed that the Passover was on a different day than that day upon which it was celebrated by the Judeans in Jerusalem. Clifton has a detailed study of the chronology of the final week in the ministry of Christ, 
and the three days and three nights of his entombment, which is entitled Three Days and Three Nights. It's available on his website at Christogenia, emmaheiser.christogenia.org. It's on the right-hand, I'm sorry, it's on the left-hand menu about midway down the page. Matthew 26, 18. And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. With you I shall keep the Passover with my students. And the students did as Joshua had arranged for them, and they prepared the Passover. The words to a certain man, in my translation I have interpreted as a parenthetical statement here, indicating that Christ described the man in more detail to the disciples who were to find him, but that Matthew simply chose not to record that description fully. Mark, in his Gospel from 1412, gives us a fuller picture, and I will read it. Verse 12, And on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover is sacrificed, his students say to him, How do you wish the parting that we may prepare in order that you may eat the Passover? And he sends two of his students and says to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water shall meet you. Again, we see the providence of God in Christ, which isn't even really noticed by the apostles. They just believe him and do it. Follow him, and wherever he should enter, you should, you should say to the master of the house that the teacher says... Where are my quarters where I shall eat the Passover with my students? And he shall show you a spacious, furnished upper room. And there you shall eat the Passover. You shall prepare it for us. I'm sorry. And the students went out and came into the city and found just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Luke's account also agrees with that of Mark here. It is evident also from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians written over 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, that Christians should indeed still be keeping the Passover. We should still be keeping the Feast of Passover. I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new dough, just as you were unleavened. Since also our Passover, Christ has been sacrificed. Consequently, we should keep the festival. In other words, we should keep the Passover feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of sloth and wickedness, but with unleavened sincerity and truth. Matthew 26, verse 20. Then it being late, he reclined with the twelve. And upon the reading he said, Truly I say to you, that one from among you shall betray me. And he being exceedingly grieved, each one began to say to him, Prince, am I the one? Records of this event are found in all four Gospels. It is only natural that each of those Gospels should differ somewhat, each writer hearing and seeing and understanding different parts of the things which had occurred, and the things which Joshua spoke at that last meal which they shared together. We have four different perspectives, right? The differences in the accounts reflecting the way in which each of the four recorders not only heard the things that were done and said, 
but also the way that each of them understood those things serves to prove the veracity of the Gospels rather than disproving it. These words in Matthew chapter 14 are much the same as they are here. Matthew 26, 23. Then responding, he said, He having dipped the hand with mine into the bowl, he shall betray me. Indeed, the Son of Man goes just as it is written concerning him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It was good for him that that man had not been born. In John's Gospel, we see a much more complex version of the story. And and everybody is um, wondering who it was that would betray him. And, and the Apostle John is actually beckoned to ask Christ who the betrayer was. But that doesn't mean that Matthew saw that going on, right? So we have an honest account from Matthew, and we have an honest account from John. We can't expect all 12 people in the room to see the same exact things transpiring. And as I proceed through the four Gospels in this series, I will discuss these things at further depth and the nuances and innuendos and, and the major differences as I can see them. I, I'm not saying I'm going to catch everything right. Okay, there are many places in the Psalms and the other prophets which tell us of the sufferings which are to befall the Christ. One of these places where those sufferings were prophesied is in Isaiah chapter 53. And I will read that here. Verse 1. Who has believed thy report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his birth? I know that the King James has generation there. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich 
in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, his offspring. Yes, Yahshua Christ has offspring, because he is Yahweh. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many? For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. These things, written only to the children of Israel, Yahshua died and bore the sins for the children of Israel alone, and for nobody else. Now to repeat Matthew twenty six twenty four. Indeed, the Son of Man goes just as it is written concerning him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It was good for him if that man had not been born. Let me read 1 Enoch 38, 2. And when the righteous one shall appear before the eyes of the righteous, whose elect works hang upon the Lord of Spirits, and the light shall appear to the righteous and the elect who dwell in the earth, the light is the gospel. John says that Christ is the light, the word made flesh. Where then will be the dwelling of the sinners? And where is the resting place of those who have denied the Lord of Spirits? It had been good for them if they had not been born. So we see who Christ is talking about, those who deny him. Not only Judas Iscariot, he's only the beginning of those who deny him. It, it's, um, when the, the Old Testament is examined honestly, when we understand when the books were written, we see so many um, prophecies of Christ spread out over a 1,000-year period. It's a thousand years from the time of Moses to the time, to the time of Zechariah. And these prophecies keep coming. And they're all fulfilled in Christ. In, in every facet, every prophecy of the Messiah is fulfilled in one way or another in Christ, except the second coming and the destruction of his enemies. But when we see how old these records are, they're told of his first coming. I mean, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And, and they are from the second and first century B.C. for the most part. And they record all of these. And we have the Septuagint manuscripts, and, and we understand that the Septuagint was around from the, from the third century B.C. And we have bits and pieces that are older than that. Well, we have quotes of Moses in Greek writers that date from well before the time of Christ. We have mentions of Moses in Greek writers that date from well before the time of Christ. And we see all these Old Testament prophecies basically 
um, fulfilled in, in, in these New Testament witnesses. And, and we see Christ, um, that his ministry, he was actually a historical person. We see that in, in the pages of Tacitus, as well as in the pages of Josephus, and in the pages of a thousand Christian writers from, from, over the first five, six hundred years of Christianity, but there are many early writers whose works survive. It, it's actually amazing that, that um, all of these things were fulfilled, which, which were written up to 1,500 years in advance. And that there are people today who could scoff at these things without even investigating them and then deny that the rest of it's going to be fulfilled. Aside from the things in the book of Revelation that are very clear, that the fulfillment is very clear. We have every reason to be Christians and no reason to be anything else. If you're a white man and you're not a Christian, you're basically a fool. Matthew 26, 25. Then responding, Judas who betrays him said, Am I the one, Rabbi? And he says to him, You know. First I'll quote Psalm 41, 9. Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted. Of course, we know that Christ chose him as a, because he was a devil, but he still fulfilled these words. Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And Christ said, he who dips the bread with me will be the one that betrays me. What Christ says, um, you know, that's, it. That's, that's how he answered the question, you know. The words you know or you say or you have spoken were used as a response by Christ to express agreement with the person that what they had asked was both affirmative and true. And by that device, and it's an interesting one, by that device the words came from the mouth of the speaker and not from Christ himself. Christ actually, by those answers, changed the speaker's question into a statement, right? So that it would not be Christ offering the testimony, but the speaker. Another example of that is in Matthew 27, verse 11, where we see this exchange between Pilate and Christ. Then Yahshua stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? And Yahshua said to him, You say, you say, you, you said it. That's all he said. <laughs> he turned his question into a statement and, and made him the, 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 um, the one that provided this testimony. It's an interesting rhetorical device. Matthew twenty six twenty six. Then upon their reading, Yahshua taking and blessing the bread, broke it and giving it to the students said, You take it, eat, this is my body. And taking a cup, and giving thanks, gave it to them, saying, All of you drink from it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which on account of many is being poured out for remission of errors, or forgiveness of sins, right? But I say to you, by no means shall I drink even now from this produce of the vine, meaning the wine, until that day when I shall drink it with you anew in the kingdom of my Father. 
we will all be here in the flesh, right? That's the Christian promise. Every single one of us. And singing hymns, they went out into the Mount of Olives. John did not think it important enough to record this event of Yahshua's breaking the bread and distributing the wine at the table. John, who wrote his gospel 60 years after the fact, that alone diminishes any credibility it has as a ritual which is compulsory for salvation. That's an idea which is a ridiculous Romish church contrivance. Sacramentalism is not Christianity. The account in Mark is very much like the account given here by Matthew. But now I'll read it from Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour had come, he reclined, and and the ambassadors or apostles with him. And he said to them, With longing have I desired to eat this Passover with you before that which I am to suffer. For I say to you that by no means shall I eat this until when it shall be fulfilled in the kingdom of Yahweh. And taking a cup, blessing it, he said, Take this and divide it for yourselves. For I say to you, by no means shall I drink from the produce of the vine from until now, from now until when the kingdom of heaven of Yahweh should come. And taking bread, blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which on behalf of you is being given. This you do for my recollection. In other words, in remembrance of me, right? And in like manner, the cup, while eating, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which on your account is being spilled. Yet there is nothing in Luke that would make this a compulsory ritual and a commandment relating to salvation for Christians. Rather, Luke only repeated the words of Christ, which the other gospel writers did not even record. They didn't feel it important enough, which state, this you do for my recollection or in remembrance of me. Now let's look at how Paul interpreted these words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul asked, Paul asked this, the cup of eulogy, which is the cup of blessing, right? The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf One body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf. Yes, that word that's translated as communion in the King James Version is the common Greek word which means fellowship, koinonia. At 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, Paul asked, Now do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? And this was a response to what he said in verse 20, that of your gathering into one place, it is not to eat the supper of the prince. Christians did not gather publicly for communion. Rather, just as Christ and the apostles, communion was a private meal shared in one's own home with one's own kith and kin, period. Paul said, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, 
For I have received from the prince, meaning from Yahshua, from Christ, that which I have also transmitted to you, that Prince Yahshua, in the night in which he had been handed over, took wheat bread, and giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This you do in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup, along with the dinner, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. This you do as often as you may drink in remembrance of me. Indeed, as often as you may eat this wheat bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince until he should come. What we have here is a description. Every meal that a Christian has is communion. Every meal. Every meal we share with our brethren and give thanks to God. And that is all that is asked of us. That's all these verses are saying. That when we eat and we drink and we have that fellowship with each other, we give thanks and do it in God's memory. The false Roman church communion ritual only makes an excuse to have a professional priesthood, period. That they can rule over your faith. None of that is scriptural, period. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Yahshua says to them, You shall all be made to stumble by me on this night, for it is written, I shall smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Zechariah chapter 13 is an end-time prophecy. However, I believe that it describes the entire last 2,000 years. Both Paul in Hebrews chapters, verses, I'm sorry, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, profess that this last age, since the crucifixion, is indeed the last times. That's what they call it. Zechariah 13, 7 and 8 say this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, saith Yahweh of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones, and it shall come to pass that all in the land, saith Yahweh, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Much of our race has already been destroyed. All of the former Genesis 10 white nations have been mongrelized. Most of the revelation of the Christ has already unfolded. Still more of us may yet be destroyed by the enemies of our God. But we are promised a third for a remnant. That means we win in the end, right? Matthew 26, verse 32. And after what it takes for me to be raised, I shall go before you into Galilee. Then responding, Peter says to him, If all are made to stumble by you, I shall not ever be made to stumble. Yahshua said to him, Truly I say to you, that on this night before a cock shall crow, three times shall you deny me. Shall you deny me? Peter says to him, 
even if it would be necessary for me to die with you, by no means shall I deny you. Likewise spoke all the students. Probably encouraged by Peter, right? This helps to show just how stubborn a man Peter was. Peter had argued with Christ earlier in his ministry, and Christ had barked at him, Get behind me, Satan. Yet even here, Peter has not yet learned to refrain from arguing with his master. And for this, Peter was committed. He was committed to hearing everything that he was told three times. Three times, as it is recorded in the last chapter of John, did Yahshua ask if Peter loved him. And three times, Yahshua demanded that Peter feed his sheep. Peter was evidently very annoyed at that, as it's recorded by John. Likewise, three times, Peter had to see the four-cornered sheep come down from heaven in Acts chapter 10, so that Peter would get it, right? It's the same here, where Peter was told that he would deny Christ. And again, he argued, again, he disputed it. So that he had to endure that very thing three times. Peter remained stubborn. Among Yahshua's last recorded words to him are these. From John 22:18, Yahshua tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked about wherever you wished. But when you should grow old, you shall extend your hand, and another shall gird you, and bring you to where you do not wish. So Peter was stubborn, even in his old age. Matthew twenty six thirty six. Then Yahshua gives with them, I'm sorry, then Yahshua goes with them into a place called Gethsemane, the garden, and says to the students, sit in this spot. While upon departing over there, I shall pray. And taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be grieved and troubled. Then he says to them, My soul is deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And having gone forth a little, he fell upon his face praying. And he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. But not as I desire, rather as you do. The, the disputers love this passage, right? Yahshua Christ is Yahweh our God come in the flesh as one of his own sons. And the gospel accounts and the Old Testament prophecies are replete with the proofs of that statement. Yet, without a parable, he did not speak to men. And everything that he said and everything that he did were an example to men. So here, where he prays, it is for an example to men. It is for our edification. He himself does not need edification. Here he prays that he would rather not suffer, but that whatever is the will of God, that is what he would do. That, too, should be for our example, and it should be our own model when we pray concerning ourselves. 
Matthew 26:40. And he comes to the students and finds them sleeping, and says to Peter, Thusly, you are not able for one hour to stay awake with me. This demonstrates fully the fallibility of man. Not even those who were closest to God could remain alert for him in his mission. Verse 41. Stay awake and pray that you would not enter into trial. Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If we do not keep our minds fixed on what God may desire for us, to seek that, which we may only find through prayer and through his word, then we may easily enter into the earthly temptation and trial. And even if the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. For that reason, Paul told us that we must exercise our bodies for godliness. At Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Matthew 26, 42. Again, for a second time departing, he prayed, saying, My father, if this is not able to pass unless I would drink it, it must be your will. This short prayer demonstrates how quickly Yahshua accepted the word of God, since his circumstances had not changed in a short period of time. He tells us that he must proceed and allow himself to face the coming hardship, his crucifixion. We all face trials in life that seem unavoidable. We pray that the will of God is brought to pass and that we are given the strength to face our trials. Psalm 116, from the Septuagint. Alleluia, praise be Yahweh. I am well pleased, because Yahweh will hearken to the voice of my supplication, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore will I call upon him while I live. The pangs of death compassed me. The dangers of hell found me. I found affliction and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, deliver my soul, my life. Yahweh is merciful and righteous. Yeah, our God has pity. Yahweh preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he delivered me. Return to thy rest, O my soul. For Yahweh has dealt bountifully with thee. For he has delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I shall be well-pleasing before Yahweh in the land of the living. Praise be Yahweh. I believe, wherefore I have spoken, but I was greatly afflicted. And I said in mine amazement, every man is a liar. What shall I render to Yahweh for all the things wherein he has rewarded me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people in public in Jerusalem. Precious is the sight of Yahweh, I'm sorry, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints, and Christ sets the example, knowing that he will live again. We should understand that same thing. O Yahweh, 
I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thy handmaid. Thou hast burst my bonds asunder. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of praise, and will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh in the presence of all his people in the court of Yahweh's house in the midst of thee, Jerusalem. Matthew 26.43 And coming again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and leaving them again, having gone. He prayed for a third time, having spoken the same speech. Again, then he comes to the students and says to them, You sleep. Finally, then, are you rested? Yes, they are rhetorical questions. Behold, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of wrongdoers. Arise, we must go. Behold, he who is betraying me is near. 2 Samuel 24.14 And David said unto Gad, I am in great straits. Let us now fall into the hands of Yahweh, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. Of course, Christ knew, as he says in John, that he could lay down his life for the sheep, John chapter 10, and pick it up again. Matthew 26, 47. And upon his still speaking, behold, Judas had come, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the high priests and the elders of the people. And he betraying him, this is a parenthetical statement, and he betraying him had given to them a sign saying, he whom I should kiss sees him. There is a similar story in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 8. When they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them, and Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him, and upon it a girdle with a sword fastened upon his loins and in the sheath thereof. And as he went forth, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him therewith in the fifth rib, and shed out his bowels into the ground, and struck him not again, and he died. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued at the Sheba, the son of Bikri. Amasa was made a captain of the army by Absalom when Absalom tried to supplant David, his father. Betrayal with a kiss being the common element there. And immediately, having come forth to Joshua, he said, Greetings, Rabbi, meaning Judas, said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Then Joshua said to him, Friend, for what are you here? Then having come forth, they laid hands upon Yahshua and seized him. Of course, Matthew takes a shortcut. This exchange is a little longer in John. I'll discuss it at great length when we get there. The word here rendered friend is the Greek word edahiris or hetairis, which signifies a comrade or a companion. 
The word does have a deeper meaning since the, in the Greek schools of profane philosophy, it was also used of disciples by their teachers, which is probably why Christ is using it here. Yet I am certain that Christ is using it sarcastically. Judas is not truly his friend. Let me read Psalm 41.9 again. Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Matthew 26.51 And behold, one of those with Joshua extending the hand, drew his sword, and smiting the servant of the high priest, took off his ear. Then Yahshua says to him, Return your sword into its place. For all those taking the sword shall be destroyed by the sword. The statement, For all those taking the sword shall be destroyed by the sword, I think people are too quick to take out of context. Its application is not for all future time, and plenty have picked up the sword appropriately or out of necessity, and have gone on to live long lives thereafter, right? Rather, this statement is for this place in time to inform us that the will of Yahweh must be carried out even when it is not to our benefit that vengeance belongs to him alone, and that all those who take the sword unrighteously shall be rewarded in kind. John records this exchange quite differently, where in chapter 18 of his gospel, he writes, Then Simon Peter, Matthew had left him unnamed, right? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Malchus was the name of the servant. Therefore, Yahshua said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the father gave to me, shall I not drink it? Christ knew that he had to lay down his life for the sheep. Matthew 26:53. Or do you suppose that I am not able to summon my father, and he shall have come to me now over twelve legions of messengers, or angels? Psalm 91:11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Matthew twenty six fifty four. Then how would the writings be fulfilled that thusly it is necessary to happen? Aside from those things which we have seen in Isaiah chapter fifty three, we see in Daniel nine, Daniel nine, verse twenty six, very explicitly. And after three score and two weeks, and Daniel was counting the weeks from the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So Daniel was counting weeks of, of prophetic days, each week being a year, from approximately 456 B.C. Daniel is counting 490 years. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. This thing was necessary to happen. Of course, the apostles did not understand all of the prophecy until after the events did happen. At that moment, Yahshua said to the crowds, As for a robber 
you have come out with swords and clubs to take me. Each day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has happened in order that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then the students all leaving him fled. As Joshua had warned the students at verse 31, you shall all be made to stumble by me on this night. Verse 57. And those having seized Joshua led him off to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. But Petros followed him from, from afar under the court of the high priest, and entering inside, sat with the deputies to see the outcome. John's version of this account is much more complete in several respects. There, they brought Yahshua to Annas first, he being the father-in-law of Caiaphas and the former high priest himself. In John's version, an unnamed disciple accompanied Peter, and only by that unnamed disciple did Peter even gain access to the court of the high priest. Since that unnamed disciple knew the servant of the high priest who kept the door. And this is almost certainly how that servant later accused people of be, Peter of being a disciple of Joshua's. The unnamed disciple of John's account must have been John himself. And John never mentioned his own name in reference to himself until the revelation of Joshua Christ, which was recorded by him in John's Gospel and in John's epistles. He never mentioned his own name. Verse 59. Then the high priest and the entire council sought false testimony against Joshua that they may kill him. Yet they found not many false witnesses coming forth. Psalm 27.12. Deliver me not over unto the will of my enemies. For false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. And, of course, David prayed not to be delivered to his enemies, where Christ knew that he had to be delivered to his enemies. But later, two came, two, I'm sorry, but later, two having come forth, two false witnesses. They said, he said this, that I am able to destroy the temple of Yahweh, and in three days I will build it. From the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, we read it, verse 18. Therefore the Judeans responded and said to him, What sign do you show to us, since you do these things? Yahshua replied and said to them, You destroy this temple, and in three days I shall raise it. Therefore the Judeans said, Forty-six years to build this temple, and you shall raise it in three days. And John has a parenthetical statement here. But he had spoken concerning the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, and I'm still quoting John, his students remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the writing and in the word which Joshua spoke. They remembered it and they believed it because that was the primary charge against him that the Pharisees had. It must be that he planned it from the beginning. He planned it that way from the beginning, that this would be the false accusation by which the Jews executed him. Yahshua used those who were his enemies to destroy the real temple, the real tabernacle, the Adamic body 
which is the very temple in which Yahweh himself came to redeem Israel, thereby effecting that redemption. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 27 and 28. Slay all her bullocks, let them go down into the slaughter. Woe unto them, for their day is come, the time of their visitation. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon, to declare in Zion the vengeance of Yahweh our God, the vengeance of his temple. We still await. Is taking vengeance for his true temple. Matthew twenty six sixty two, and arising, the high priest said to him, "Would you answer nothing for what they testify against you?" But Joshua was silent. Joshua made no defense against their false accusations. In fulfillment of Isaiah fifty three seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And the high priest said to him, this would be Caiaphas, the Sadducee, I adjure you by the living God, that you would tell us whether you are the anointed son of God. Yahshua says to him, you have spoken. There he goes again. You said, you have spoken. In other words, He's agreeing, but he's letting Caiaphas make the testimony. He turned it around on him. But I say unto you, from this time you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Neither does the statement which Joshua made concerning the right hand of power and the clouds of heaven qualify as an answer. It does not answer the question that Caiaphas had asked. Rather, it is only a general statement and it's not an answer to his question at all. Daniel 7.13 I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Sounds very much like a scene from the Revelation also, right? Psalm 110, verse 1. And Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit now at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. 1 Enoch 1 9 gives us insight into what the clouds of heaven really are. And behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodlyly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the clouds of heaven are the great clouds and witnesses of Paul, are the people of God at the time of his vengeance. Matthew 26.65 Then the high priest tore his garment, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, 
now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And those replying said, he is liable for death. Those replying wanted to see him dead under any circumstances. In fact, Yahshua said nothing that could be construed as blasphemy. He said nothing concerning himself. He only agreed with the high priest and made a general statement about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, which, in reality, in a court of law, doesn't mean a whole lot, right? doesn't mean anything in a legitimate court. But this is an Edomite Jew kangaroo court, that this is a, a, um, a show trial, because they only need an excuse to have him put to death. That is why the seed of the serpent is considered to be the devil. That word devil comes from a Greek word, diabolos. And diabolos means in Greek, a false accuser. And we see in the Revelation, the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And when they had struck him, saying, and they had struck him, saying, Prophecy to us, Christ, who is it hitting you? Their challenge to him indicates that he was accredited with the ability to do such things as a matter of reputation. They also admit, even though they have no respect for him, that he was the, indeed the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of the Old Testament prophecy. Matthew twenty six sixty nine, And Peter sat outside in the court, and one servant girl had come forth to him, saying, You also were with Yahshua the Galilean. But he denied it before all, saying, I know not what you say. And having gone out to the gate, another saw him and says to, to those there, He was with Yahshua the Nazorian. And again, he denied with an oath that I do not know the man. Then after a short time, those standing, having come forth, said to Peter, Truly, you also are from among them, for even your speech makes you conspicuous. Then he began to curse and to swear that I do not know the man, and immediately a cock crowed. And Peter remembered the words spoken by Yahshua, that before a cock shall crow three times, you shall deny, deny me. And going out, he wept bitterly. Yahshua the Nazorian. I will discuss this title at greater length at a later date. Yahshua was called a Nazorian after the city of Nazareth, where he was raised. The word Nazareth is from a Hebrew word, which means branch. This is the literal fulfillment of the prophecy that Yahshua, the branch, would be the servant of God called the branch, as it is found in Zechariah chapters 3 and 6. But the word has no direct link 
to the ancient sect of the Nazarites founded by Yahweh, as we see in Numbers chapter 6 and Judges chapter 13. A lot of people want to connect that that name, Yahshua the Nazorian, to the Nazarites of Numbers chapter 6, and that's just not right. Yahshua was not a Nazarite in that sense of the word. And they said to Peter, for even your own speech makes you conspicuous, and the phrase shows that the Galileans spoke a different dialect than the people of Jerusalem. There are many other things to discuss here, especially when it comes to the trials of Christ. And they will be discussed as we proceed through the four Gospels. Next week, Galway willing, we will be back to discuss the Roman trial of Christ from Matthew's perspective in Matthew chapter 27. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I will see you tomorrow night at 8 p.m. I will be here with Clifton and Heiser. Good night.